really frame where we are for our next three sessions. What you have uh, underneath Rembrandt's painting, and I will refer to Rembrandt's painting probably just before we conclude tonight. But um, what you have beginning there with the parenthesis of number one is uh, are 10 vital aspects of what God would have us understand about the fullness of heaven. Now, what do I mean when I use the phrase, the fullness of heaven? A lot of us who've grown up in the church have a very high and appropriate regard for what happens to Christians when they die. And let me say this very clearly out front. If, if in this room tonight, if, if in God's sovereign timing, one of us should draw our last breath, any one of us that would be ending life tonight, but ending life in Christ, the Bible is very clear to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And right now, uh, in eternity, before the throne of grace, there is gathered what the Bible calls the great family of God with spirits made perfect. In other words, that uh, the Bible tells the story that, that, that right now, even before the second coming of Jesus, we can have absolute assurance that if we die in this life before the second coming of Jesus, we are immediately taken to be with Jesus. This is good news. I have buried some very dear people. Um, as an 11-year-old little boy, having buried my just-turned-38-year-old mother, you better believe there came a time in my life when I was so glad to know my mother was not simply in a box in the ground in Alamance County, that through the gift of eternal life that day when I was so young and vulnerable, she was immediately with the Lord. So I want to say very clearly, a part of the way we've always thought about heaven in the church is right, but it's not complete. See, right now, those that are in heaven don't have their resurrection body. Uh, they, they are consciously aware and alive. They are in the grand company of the, the redeemed spirits, and, and they're not in soul slumber. There is a great joy. Uh, they are more joyful than we are, but they are not more secure. Let me say that again. If you're a Christian, if, if again, not because you're a good person, but because Jesus is a perfect Savior, if you were in Christ tonight, those who are in heaven right now are more joyful than you, but they are not more secure. Just sit in that. Is that good, isn't that good news? And, and I hope that you breathe that in and would say, Scotty, thank you. That's not a throwaway line. I need to know that. Because some of us, you see, we live in very difficult seasons of life, and we need to constantly know because of our union with Christ, we cannot be more loved by God than we are right now, and we will never be loved less because Jesus is our righteousness. So if we were to die tonight, we would be presently with the Lord. But as we'll see in this vision, uh, until Jesus comes back, what we would call the fullness of heaven or the full manifestation of eternal inheritance. It's no, no one is realizing it yet. Um, once again, our loved ones, our friends that are in paradise, communing with the Lord and their resurrected spirits, they await the resurrection of their bodies. So here's what we're going to do now. We're going to begin walking through this vision of what life will be like when Jesus comes back. And, uh, 
Let's just trust the Lord to raise, do good, fresh questions. Let's trust him to move us to the tonight to say, why didn't I ever hear this before? Is this really true? I'm going to give uh, Pastor Ron all kinds of wonderful questions to answer when I fly back to Nashville, Tennessee on Sunday afternoon. But you know what? His questions will be mine. Consider with me, I has not seen nor ear heard nor thought even entered into the mind of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. So, uh, Revelation 21, verse 1. Now, let me, re- let me remind you or tell some of us for the first time. This is phrased the last vision of the Bible for many reasons. Number one, in the chronology of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you finally come to the end of the book. And the very last vision of the Bible, however, is not just the ending, it looks back. So one of the great things I discovered when I first started studying the book of Revelation is it picks up on every single theme in the Bible. When the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, when he was in his 80s, he was an octogenarian when he got these marvelous visions. He was uh, in, in exile. He was under arrest. The Roman world was trying to destroy the church. So John the Apostle is probably 82, 3, or 4, separated from the churches of Asia Minor, and God begins to give him this whole series of visions. Well, the whole series of visions always look back to everything God did and promised throughout his word. And you see, that's, that, that's, that's very encouraging for us tonight and tomorrow morning when we think about it. I, I love the way the apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 1.20. Paul says, no matter how many promises God has made, they all find their yes in Jesus. And the book of Revelation underscores that more clearly and fully than any book in the Bible because it is the book of completion. So in this last vision, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 21, John is looking back over the whole story, creation, fall, redemption, and the longing for restoration. And here's what God gave him as a vision of saying, John, this is going to be. Encourage my people. Encourage my people with this vision. So here's where it starts. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. What's our first of ten affirmations? What did John see? A new heaven and new earth, the new creation world of perfect peace and righteousness. How do we get that out of that first verse? And and how does that first verse really begin to underscore what we've been saying in our first first session tonight? Look at the two principal themes that John mentions in that first verse. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, reading that, what logically might you assume John is saying? Maybe, maybe you've even been taught this, as I was taught as a young Christian in the late 60s. Here's the kind of the world that I thought I was living in. I thought the Bible was telling a story that one day the world in which we live right now one day, either through World War III, World War VII, or who knows what, one day it's just going to completely blow up and be destroyed. But then when Jesus comes back, a brand new world will be created. And you know, when you read this first verse of Revelation 21, you might think, well, isn't that kind of what it's saying? Well, actually, no. What's being said here is, as John the apostle is thinking about all the promises that God has made throughout his word. Here's what he's saying. Finally, the day 
of restoration is here. This present broken world that God first made that became riddled with sin in its broken evil form, it is no more. And what emerges, emerges kind of like as you would think about a resurrection, right? And the Bible talks about your life and my life. When, when we are buried, right, our, our, our bodies one day will be raised. They will, the same body will be raised but glorified. Uh, the older I get, and my next birthday will be my 68th, so I'll go ahead and date myself for you. I'm a 1950 baby. Uh, February 1st, I was born on Groundhog's Day Eve, 1950. And, uh, you know, uh, as my body gets older, uh, stuff gets stiffer. I make more sounds when I get up out of a chair. Uh, takes me longer to do certain things. I'm forgetting stuff all the time. A part of the gospel, a part of the way the Bible tells the story is that I'm not going to have a replacement body. In, 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 in the future, I'm not going to all of a sudden look like Brad Pitt or something like that. And we have these silly, silly notions of what we think, you know. I remember some of the early teaching I heard on heaven was so wrong. It said something like this. Well, in heaven, we'll all be 33 years old because that's how old Jesus was when he died. And so to be like so many, so much nonsense we have of little images we pick up through the years. But hear this and be glad. That body you live in matters. God made us body, soul, and spirit. Every part of our being reveals the wonder of God. I'm looking forward to a resurrected body. Anyone else in this room tonight? You're looking forward to a body that will never wear out? Yeah, Amen. That's right. Pretty much. Absolutely, Jonathan. Pretty doggone much. You're exactly right. Well, oh, I tell you, we all want to be new. We ought to be renewed. But you see, here's what John is saying in, the first, in this first affirmation. Guess what? Not just me as an individual, but the world God has made, it's destined not to be destroyed, but made new. Now, he throws in this little phrase we need to unpack. Notice what he said. I saw, and, and John, by God's spirit, seeing this vision, he's just seeing the unfolding, the completion of the story, seeing, well, this very broken world. Wow, all those promises that God gave Isaiah about mountains skipping and trees clapping their hands and things being made new, new heaven and new earth. It's finally coming. John is seeing it with the eye of faith. But what does he mean by this phrase, and there was no longer any sea? Oh, that one used to make me sad when I first read it because I thought, well, does the future mean we're no longer going to have the gulf anymore and the sugar white sands of the gulf? You know, is the, is the new heaven and new earth, is heaven going to be devoid of, of all the wonders of creation that God made? Actually, not at all. The word sea or the concept of the sea in the book of Revelation stands for the place of chaos and evil. And what John is saying early in this vision, and you would see how this would land on his heart in the, in the world of, of evil of Rome, to say there's no longer any sea is to say that defeated evil one day will be eradicated evil. Now, aren't you looking forward to that? What does the Bible tell us that on the cross... Jesus defeated evil, right? Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and he was successful. But it's kind of like in World War II. Some of us that know world history, and maybe some of you served in that war, <clears throat> we know there's a difference between D-Day and V-Day, right? D-Day is when the technically World War II was over, right? Uh, uh, there was a surrender, but then there was a mop-up operation, so you had D-Day and then you had V-Day. What John is saying is this. Here is the encouragement we have as a people of God. 
The very broken world that we live in, that one day was a perfect world of Eden, it's, it's going to be restored. It's going to be renewed. And there will be no more evil. Maybe, Ron, the first time you heard me talking through some of this in that missions conference, you could see how this would play out. Right now in Nashville, Tennessee, <clears throat> many churches are finally uh, becoming less ingrown, thinking that we're just to kind of get together and huddle together until Jesus comes back and churches are getting more outward looking in mission. And a part of that reason to be missionally oriented is this kind of hope. Right now we have a, we have a lot of growing issues in Nashville. One is human slavery. We have a, a huge... Um, <clears throat> huge expression of sexual slavery in, in the greater Nashville area. Uh, young men and women in the world are told, trust me, I'll get you a record deal, and, and, and people are deceived, and they come in to uh, our city, and, uh, and, and, and slavery is a tragic issue. You would know that. that that's not, uh, it's not a surprise to any of us. It should be alarming to all of us. Well, when the church begins to understand that defeated evil will be eradicated evil, we're not afraid of our world. We're not afraid of brokenness. We begin to say, guess what? Things are not as they appear. Through the finished work of Jesus, there is in play now a kingdom story of redemption that gives us hope. Uh, we who work for the elimination of human slavery in Nashville, Tennessee right now do so with hope because we know one day there will be no more slavery. Another example, very personal level. One of the artists I've walked with in our church family for over 30 years now, some of you may know the name Stephen Curtis Chapman. And Stephen and Mary Beth came into our church oh, over 30 years ago. And so I walked with them through all their story. And, and what's marvelous now is, if you know anything about uh, Stephen's music and the ministry of Show Hope, uh, they, for the last several years, have given their lives over to the crisis issue of knowing there are 140 million-plus orphans in the world. And, of course, it started in their family when their 11-year-old daughter, Emily, I was with her when she said this, said to her mom and dad, our house is too big. We've got too many empty beds and too many empty chairs at the kitchen table. We need to have more children. To which Mary Beth said, I'm not having any more babies. Well, then Emily went on one of the missions trips to our churches. Our junior highs went to Haiti and began to realize there are a lot of orphans in the world. And, 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 and what could we do? Well, you know, here's one family saying, we're a part of a story that says the future is the elimination of all evil. So we show up with hope right now. We show up with hope, show hope. And right now, Show Hope Ministry, through one Christian musician, has raised over $10 million, secured the adoption of 5,000 people. And here's the function of hope. Here's why our last word tomorrow morning is, what would it look like? for First Presbyterian Church, Panama City, to come more fully alive to the gospel of God's grace and the beauty of God's story. How will every one of you realize in God's story there's no little people or no little places, that, that all of you matter. None of us are the point, but, but, but you all, y'all all can show up together. I mean, It'd be marvelous. It's going to be marvelous to begin to think how a bigger gospel, a bigger vision of the gospel of the kingdom is going to encourage your church to say, isn't it marvelous to know that one day the knowledge of God's glory is going to cover Panama City as the waters cover the sea? See, this is what John is seeing as an 83-year-old person. So nobody in this room has permission to say, I'm too old, I missed my moment. 
I love that about John. He's 83. How old was Moses when he began his best ministry? 80. Good news for all the octogenarians and others. All right. Or for all of us. So first affirmation, and this is what, you know, again, I wish I had a, uh, an hour to talk about each one of these. Hear me say this. The Bible is saying the world where you live in right now is not going to blow up and be destroyed and be replaced. The future of heaven is not a story of replacement, but redemption. And it means it's why we should be the best neighbors. It's why we should be those that begin to think about how the missionaries we support through our church, but also how we live and love in our community. It's connected to a bigger story that has a guaranteed ending. There will be no more sea. There will be no more evil. There'll be no more brokenness. Why? Because Jesus completed his work. Goes under the second affirmation. Look at the second affirmation. What else does John see? He not only sees the new creation world of perfect peace and righteousness, he sees a city radiant with the joy of its bridal population. Look at verse 2, same chapter. John goes on and he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Well, what would this be talking about? What Again, John He's, he's, he's the spirit of God is showing him things that have been secured by the work of Jesus. And now he's getting a better picture than anyone has ever had about here's what it means. Here's what it will be like when the true king returns. He sees the world, the glorified, resurrected world that we live in right now. But now he sees the population. And this should, I pray in our last, oh, 17, 18, 20 minutes or so. I pray this brings some encouragement to some of us in this room. Notice what he says. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. What does this mean? It means that Jesus has purchased and is redeeming a bride from every race, tribe, tongue, and people group. One day, the broken and divided church will be the beautiful and united bride of Jesus. Our wedding gown is the perfect righteousness of Jesus. There is nothing more than the gospel, just more of the gospel. Now, once again, how would this help John in his day, and how should it help us? John sees the future, and he sees what? He sees, he's beginning to see glimpses of this new world, this renewed world, and, he, and he's reminded of how perfect Eden was, but he's beginning to see through his vision everything Eden was and more is in the future for God's people. But as he begins to think now about this image of the bride of Christ, where would his heart go? Well, two chapters earlier, and some of you that know the book of Revelation would, would immediately think about this. What happens in Revelation 19 is what's called the wedding feast of the Lamb. The very first thing that the Bible says that will take place when Jesus returns literally to this earth, the earth he created, the earth over which he is the Lord, the earth in which he dwells right now by his spirit, the very things, the first thing that will happen when he comes back will be what's known as the wedding feast of the Lamb. He is the great bridegroom. In fact, Tim Keller uh, and his wife Kathy wrote a marvelous book on marriage few years back called The Meaning of Marriage. And in it, Tim Keller said something so profound. He said this, and think about this late into a Friday night. Tim said, Kathy and I have realized through our study of the Bible that Jesus is the spouse we always wanted. 
that no human spouse would ever be enough. And you see, it's through sin and death that sometimes we think, oh, if I'd been given a different family, if I'd married the right person, if I'd had your children, not my children. We go on and on and on thinking about somehow people would be enough to fill us up. When basically what the Bible's saying is this, no human marriage is forever. Have you ever really thought much about the fact that when Jesus said that in the life to come, which is the life of that we will enjoy forever, life in the new heaven and new earth, that they're neither married or given in marriage. For some of us, we're quietly saying, hallelujah. None of you, of course. And some are saying, oh, no, you're telling me me and Mabel aren't going to be living, cooking grits together with shrimp forever and ever and ever? You know, uh, I promise you this, the Bible, the story the Bible's telling about our future is, you know, the spouse you love right now, you will know better than ever in eternity. But we won't be living together as husbands and wives, except in a profound collective sense, our relationship with Jesus. He's the bridegroom that's coming for us. And again, the image there is this. Every longing you have for deep connection and intimacy and community, it's going to be fully realized in your relationship with Christ. And we will enjoy that life together. Now, that gets a little bit clearer in the text. We'll, we'll see this tomorrow morning. But dear ones, I cannot say it too many times this weekend. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're someone that's been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, every you are destined for an eternity of perfect relationships. That's a pregnant pause for a good reason. It just overwhelms me to think this is how generous our God is. You'll know everybody. You'll enjoy everybody. And you'll be thoroughly enjoyed by the entire family of God as the bride of Christ. Well, a couple more things we need to say about that. What is, what is John saying here? Well, you know, God made promises. Think back with me how this shows up even if we were to look at God's story. You know, if you were to read further into the book of Genesis, looking back at that first and second panel, you know that God began to show what a generous God he was going to be when he grabbed hold of a man named Abram. Don't you love the story of Abraham? Genesis 12 through 17, Abraham emerges as just a pagan man living in an area of the Chaldeans, yet God shows up and God says, Abram, come here, count the stars, and then count the sand on the shores of Panama City Beach, and then count the dust. So shall my family be by what I'm going to be doing through your life. It's an important part of the story. God shows us what a big redeemer he signed on for being when he took Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to take you to a land you don't know. Trust me, I'm going to take you there. And through you, I will make you a great nation unto the end that all families on the face of the earth will be blessed. What John sees in this part of his vision when he sees the bride of Christ coming and that glorious day when the true bridegroom shows up, he's saying, God was not lying or exaggerated when he said to Abram, count stars, count sand, count dust. Dear, dear, dear friends, you're, part of a, you're a part of a story that is guaranteed a magnificent family that our generous God is redeeming. And he's doing it as you sit in those chairs right now. 
Some of you would say, I'm so glad I got rid into that story. I'm so glad that at some point in my life, the Lord showed me how beautiful Jesus is and I could never save myself. It was not by works. It was not by my sincerity. It was entirely by God's grace. I came to know the Father's love. And you know what? All of history is bound up with God being generous as he's been generous to you, to your neighbors, to the nations of the world. All of History is bound up not by whoever is sitting in the White House or North Korea or in Moscow. All of history is bound up with the God who is doing all things well. He is redeeming his family from every nation. John sees it, and he sees it in terms of this great bold picture. Here's a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Um, What is she wearing? She's not wearing her good deeds. She's wearing the bridal gown of the righteousness of Christ. I wish as a Christian much earlier, and I did become a Christian as a senior in high school in 1968, what I understood the gospel was in 1968 was this. That very night at a Billy Graham movie, when I heard Billy Graham at one of his first movies called The Restless Ones, bad film, bad haircuts, bad music, But Dr. Graham came on the scene, and I was a rebellious 18-year-old. I believed on Jesus and received what I believed to be the best news ever, which was the forgiveness of my sin. But here's what I thought that meant. March 7th, 1968, thank you, Father, for wiping out all my sins and forgiving forgiving me now a second chance. And now the rest of my life, I thought, was going to be, I'm going to show you I'm grateful for past sins forgiven, and I'm going to work real hard in that story to make you proud of me so that when one day at the end of my life, you might let me into heaven if I did enough. Folks, that's not the gospel. Guess what else happened March 7th, 1968? I was not just forgiven of all of my sins, not just of the past, but all of my sins of the future. And I got this wedding garment, and so did you. You're robed in the righteousness of Jesus. You cannot hear that too clearly. You cannot believe it too deeply. It is entirely Jesus' righteousness that guaranteed not only your relationship with God, but what God thinks about you right now. You'll see what this looks like as we move forward in the vision. So two things. What do we see? God who made a world loves the world he made. It's broken. It will be resurrected. Now, we don't know everything that's going to mean, but we do know this. We are sent into this world with great hope that through whatever process God will bring about, when Christ returns, it will be resurrected, glorified, just as our own, just as we will be given our own resurrected body. Look at the third affirmation, and this might be as far as we get tonight, but this is a sweet one, a profound one. What else did John see next? Verse 3 through 8, verses 3 through, I think we go through 8 or verse 3 through 6 maybe. And I heard John says, I love this part. Okay, number three, third, third of ten affirmations about what the Bible is really saying about heaven. Heaven is a real place. I love your T-shirts. Wear your T-shirts every day for the next six months. I don't mean that. One of our founding elders at Christ Community Church actually wrote a great song I want to live like heaven is a real place. Charlie Peacock, maybe some of you know that great Christian musician, but uh, it's all bound up with the study we did through Revelation. Third thing John sees is what? An eternity of fulfilled promises, redeemed stories, and all things new. 
This is such good stuff. Look at this. John said, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people. And literally in the Greek, the word people is plural, peoples. And for good reason, because we are, we are a gathering of nations. Guess what? People in heaven are not only going to be those that grew up south of the Mason-Dixon line that look like you and me. You know, we are not the point. We matter, but we're not the point. No, uh, let me go on here. Uh, uh, you know, Lord, slow me down. This is such sweet news. Finish us strong tonight, Lord, I pray. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now look at verse four. The first action of God at the second coming of Jesus as we move into what we call life in the new heaven and new earth. Look at the first action of God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Let's walk through these verses a few minutes. And this is where we will land tonight. This is a great place to conclude because I, I want to I linger here. What John is summarizing for us in verses three through six are such important themes that emerge in the whole story of God. Early in the story of the Old Testament, God starts using language that we know of through the prophet Isaiah as the Emmanuel principle. What does the word Emmanuel mean? We celebrate it most of the times as Christians during the season of Advent. Emmanuel means what? God with us. And we know that God with us finds its ultimate celebration through the incarnation of Jesus, right? You shall call his name Emmanuel, right? The Messiah was going to be the full, clear expression of God being with his people, God pursuing, God generously pursuing rebels, fools, and idolaters just like me, God with us. Well, the language of Emmanuel runs through the entire Bible. I know you had Richard Pratt last year, and Richard, of course, this brilliant Harvard-trained Old Testament scholar, picks up on these themes and the theme of the kingdom, the theme of Emmanuel, etc. And if Richard were here, he would say it a lot better than I could. But the theme of Emmanuel that, that John is referring to here in this vision is, look at how absolutely honest and faithful God has been because the day has arrived when God now is fully with his people and his people are fully with him. And look at how generous he is. He wipes every tear from their eyes. That's a Greek idiom, friends. Let me tell you what that means. Had a wonderful maternal grandmother called Granny Ward. My middle name is Ward. Granny and Paul Paul Ward. My grandparents were married 72 years. They were in the Salvation Army. My grandmother played the trombone. My granddad, the bass drum. Got quite a heritage. They were godly, godly people, and life was not easy. One of their children, my aunt, youngest of five siblings, my, my mom's uh, youngest sibling was a heroin addict for 10 years. My grandfather suffered chronic depression. Life was not easy in the Ward family, but they knew Jesus. And my grandmother had a way, after my mom died, especially when I was that 11-year-old kid that had his mom ripped out of his life, my grandmother always tended to have 
a handkerchief close by. When I would go see her and I would have little crocodile tears in my eyes being without a mom, she would pull that grandmother handkerchief out and just, you know, dab my tears. This image in this text is not about someone wiping your tears off your cheek. It's so much more profound. I know it doesn't sound very delicate, but in the Greek, literally the Greek means this. He will reach his finger into their eyes and wipe the tear out of their eye. Now, we don't, that doesn't make for good poetry or music, right? Some God, pick, God poking his finger in your eye. It's not the image. The image is God's going to redeem the pain behind the tear. I bet you some of you in this room like me wish you had some answers to some of those lingering questions. Lord, where were you when? Lord, why not? Where were you when? Our generous God is telling us, far from just giving us answers in heaven, he's going to give us himself. And the, and the pain and the sorrow of a lot of life between Eden and the new earth. The resolution is not just going to be explanations. You know, God's going to dignify us with a lot more than explanations. The pain is going to be redeemed. And you know what that would have meant for John in that first century church in Rome where, where martyrs are being almost realized daily? The Lord is saying, John, I have not abandoned my people. And it's like C.S. Lewis said in the Chronicles of Narnia through the character of Aslan, the great Christ lion, he says, when Aslan is in sight, all will be put right. See, what John is seeing early in his vision of life in the new heaven and new earth is a perfect world, perfect environment, uh, nothing broken in the world, everything made new, a perfect family, God's completed family, but, but a people now who will know the fullness of the healing of every pain in their heart. And, and, and that's accentuated in the second part of verse 4. Look at this. There will be no more death. Try to imagine this. No more death, no more mourning, crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed. There is right now death. I never will forget several years ago when we had to put down our Yorkshire Terrier named Meg, named after Meg Ryan. My wife got a Yorkshire Terrier that looked just like Meg Ryan. Well, not exactly just like Meg Ryan, but I never thought I could give my heart to a pet and I would grieve so deeply when that little Yorkie died. I am glad death in every form does not win. Aren't we glad tonight to say the sting of death has already been removed for us, right? Aren't we glad? Some of you have buried people you love. And aren't you glad that defeated death is going to be eradicated death? But there's going to be no more death. Uh, leaves are not going to drop off of trees. Death in every form, the death of dreams, the death of innocence. You'll hear me share very briefly and very appropriately tomorrow morning in our final session about becoming a church where the tear-wiping hand extends into Panama City. You know, uh, in my own journey in the last several years, well after I turned 50, and let me say this to all of us as we conclude tonight, my most important growth in a lot of these things, especially parts of the healing of my story, happened after I turned 50. I, like many men, lived from my head before I really learned to live from my heart as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor. And through brokenness, through burnout, the Lord brought me to a point of realizing there's a wound in my heart that's defined me more than I realized. And very, very briefly and very discreetly, 
one of the reasons this is so precious to me in my own story in life, but for you and for this church and for your city, um, as a 56-year-old man, I finally was brought to affirm a narrative in my story that I was so ashamed of, and it was just a brief but profoundly disruptive story of sexual abuse as a, as a, as a seven-year-old little guy. And I didn't know what to do with that. And I buried it under Romans 8:28 band-aids, and I just really tried to not deal with the fact that I had been violated at such an important... Death came to my eight-year-old heart through the violation of a neighbor. And I'm so glad to say, Jesus has been healing me. And I'm so glad that one day that that pain that still lingers will be completely made whole. And you see, as we right now, as followers of Jesus, have the assurance of our salvation, the assurance of heaven, the assurance of our Father's love, we can begin to see, Lord, where are you going to take me into my healing journey so that the mercy you give me can be extended to my friends? Dear ones, to see this vision clearly is to begin to understand the church of Jesus Christ should be the one place in the world where we don't pose or pretend about anything. There are a lot of people that would love to come to First Press, Panama City, or any church if they believed that we were just like them. There are so many people, our neighbors, our friends, people outside the church, or people that gave up in the church that think, we're just sitting here tonight talking about them, complaining about them, when they need to know we need grace just like they do, Right? I mean, you know that in your life right now, the safest people in your world are, are humble, they're gentle, they're approachable, they're believable. The, the velveteen rabbits God has written into your story. It's an awesome thing when the church of Jesus lives in view of the day when the tear-wiping hand of God will make all things new. Right now we could say, we're a healing community. We're watching the Lord set us free. Well, quickly, a couple more comments about that and we'll come back. Notice what's being said here. And this is, this is a great place to conclude. The day of no more death, mourning, crying, or pain is coming because the old order's passed away. The old order is what that second panel is in your painting. The old order is the reign of, of sin and death, the uh, the era, the epic, uh, the, the realm of where sin and death have reigned over God's creation. Where John says, I see that day when that day is completely over. And, and how does he know it to be true? Verse 5, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Notice what he's not saying. The Bible never says that Jesus is making all new things. Rather, Jesus is making all things new, which is what? A picture of redemption. Think about it in your own life right now. And some of you, if we had, if we, I'm folding my notes now to let you know I'm really sincere. We are over, okay. But if we had, well, bless you. We'll, we'll show up tomorrow. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for your enthusiasm and your beautiful smile. If we had two more hours to have uh, some words together and just uh, heard your story, somebody would say, Scotty, I would love to share with you what the Lord's been doing in my life. And I wish I'd come alive to his love, his love earlier. I wish I'd realized that he's not ashamed of me, that Jesus bore my shame outside the city. You see, the more we are alive to God's story, the freer we are with, with our own stories of growth and brokenness and grace and hope. And that's what will make your church grow as people in your community begin to say. They're not just a bunch of self-righteous people that are complaining about liberals. They're people that love Jesus because Jesus first loved them and gave himself for them. And they're living in a story of hope because Jesus is making 
all things new, not just some things new. Dear friends, let's trust the Lord as we conclude tonight. I want to pray for us. Let's get a good night's sleep tomorrow. Uh, let's come tomorrow morning and have our whatever Panama City Presbyterians have at 8 o'clock in the morning, whether that's donuts and fritters or whatever. Let's show up together, but let's show up expectant. I, I, I have the joy of having you for about two more hours of Bible study tomorrow morning. And let's just pray that the Lord will really meet us deeply. So let, let me pray for us as we conclude. Father, uh, yet again, Lord, as often as I've taught this text, my heart is so thankful and grateful. Lord, thank you that you are a great and generous God, that Eden was not a metaphor. The Garden of Eden was a reality, a real place, a real God making real people, placing them in a real beautiful world where everything was as you meant it to be. And Lord, thank you for not giving up when we rebelled. Thank you that you are a God rich in mercy and that in your great love, you promised to send Jesus who would be the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And Jesus, you did come. And you lived a life of perfect obedience for us, fulfilling the law for us. And you died upon the cross, taking the judgment we deserved. And you raised a newness of life. And now as the Lord of all things and the bridegroom of your people, you are at work in this world. Things are not as they appear. You are making all things new. And one day you will complete that process. And we will live in the perfections the joy, the passion, the intimacy, the everything rightness of life in the new heaven and new earth. We believe, help our unbelief. Oh Lord, even may tomorrow morning you extend your tear wiping hand to us as you fill us more fully with some images of the life that is to come, that is our inheritance. Uh, so we go forth now, Lord, thankful for cars that will start. Uh, thermostats that work on our walls on a humid night to give us comfort, refrigerator with refreshment, beds that we get to sleep in. Lord, you have given us all things for your glory and our good. And together we cry out, hallelujah with a Savior, hallelujah with a salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Ron.